friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations. We are so glad to have our listeners with us, and we are thankful for your weekly presence. We've prepared a good show for you this week, I hope. At the bottom of the hour, along with my co-hostess, Ashley McGuire of the Catholic Association, we'll be talking to Nicole Caruso about her book on dressing in a way that expresses your feminine genius. I hope you like it. But first, my co-hostess, Ashley McGuire, is here with me as we introduce David Nalieri to the show. He is behind the beautifully made and very moving documentary, coming to theaters in October 3rd and 4th on the life of St. Teresa of Calcutta. I've seen it. I was given one of those great screening passes, and I highly recommend it to all of you. We're going to talk to the writer and director, David Nalieri, about this film. It's called No Greater Love, Hitting Theaters in October on the 3rd and 4th. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. It's great to be with you both. We appreciate the time. No, we appreciate your time. Um, and we appreciate the beautiful movie that you made, that you directed and, you that, so and that you wrote. Both Ashley and I have watched it. I watched it only two nights ago. I kept, my husband was working down the hall in his office. He was doing some, some... I don't know, some paperwork that, that was that he was behind on. And I kept calling him over. I said, come over here and listen to this. <laughs> and I would stop oh, it and rewind. Awesome. And I said, Thank you for to that. This. I really appreciate that. You know, I, I've gotten some really beautiful comments from the film. And, it, you know, it's really a testament to the missionaries of charity and Mother Teresa. You know, we kind of turn the cameras on, let it roll. And just to capture the incredible work they do, it's just uh, quite arresting. And then, of course a chance to revisit the life of Mother Teresa. It does, it does pull you in. She was just such a remarkable person, but um, but thank you for those kind words. She was obviously, and, and when you watch the film, you, you get a wonderful idea about this. She was really a foundress from the beginning. The found, She was the foundress of a movement of this beautiful order. And what you see, and, and I hope that all our listeners will, will take the time to watch the movie. They'll be very thankful if they do. What you see is them repeating in their actions and in their words that same charism of Mother Teresa. And it was remarkable how they were able to to take this from her and then make it their own and then spread it across the world. And that I found that very impressive. Yes. You know, we started this project about a year ago. So it was quite an ambitious undertaking to make this feature length documentary in just a year. But when we started, we had to make some key decisions. How were we going to tell the story? We wanted to produce a film that would be very high production quality film that would be looked at as a definitive film on the life of Mother Teresa. But, you know, we had to figure out how we're we going to tell the story. She lived such a rich life. She traveled to so many different countries, uh, did so many great works. You had to really cherry pick what you're going to focus on. So the film is a biography in the sense that if you, if you sit down and stay with the film, you learn about Mother Teresa's life and the key events and the key occurrences and themes that shaped her. But we wanted the film to really also be a pay homage to the ongoing incredible work of the Missionaries of Charity, this order, as you alluded to, that she founded, that is present in nearly 150 countries around the world, serving the poorest and the poor. We sent film crews to 10 different countries. Mm -hmm. We filmed in Tijuana, where they're working with migrants. We had drone cameras following the Missionaries of Charity as they're 
on little small boats navigating the Amazon River Basin and going to uh, visit with remote tribes that have no contact with the outside world, filmed in the slums of Nairobi, Kenya, where they work with severely disabled children. And all of that was to show how Mother Teresa, this mission God gave her to quench the thirst of Christ on the cross, to serve the poorest of the poor, to go into the darkest holes of the world to find Jesus present in those who are suffering, is continuing to happen today with the Missionaries of Charity. And, you know, what gave me, what gives me chills and what's made this such an extraordinary opportunity for me as a filmmaker is there probably won't ever be a film like this made in our lifetimes and perhaps never again. And the reason why I say that is the missionaries of charity are not publicity seekers. For them, this was the greatest sacrifice they will ever have to make. As crazy as that sounds, to be able to allow cameras to follow them, to do interviews because they have no interest in publicity and they don't make their apostles open to media or filmmakers or photographers that want to document it. So it was really an incredible opportunity for the Knights of Columbus to be, be asked to make this film and to travel around to all these locations and capture the work of the gospel that they continue to bring forth uh, day in, day out, in season and out of season all over the world. David, I, I have kind of a comment to that effect, which is that having seen the movie, I think my biggest takeaway was that the nature of the movie kind of captures the essence of Mother Teresa and her work in the sense that you bring us so up close and front and personal with the people that they serve. And there's this sense almost like you could just turn the camera and she'd still be there. Like, so that was just an extraordinary accomplishment. And I did, I learned that you you capture this in the movie that she, uh, her interview with Malcolm Muggridge, she didn't want to do. And she had to be kind of told to do it. And that, she, you know, she was definitely not, she was arguably and remains, you know, one of the most well-known uh, household figures in the world. But, you you know, never, never sought that. I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about what, how it actually did come to be that that they allowed the Knights of Columbus and you to tell their story? Yeah, so um, I work for the Knights of Columbus, our headquarters, of course, for New Haven, Connecticut here, where we were founded back in 1882 by Father Michael McGivney, who similarly to Mother Teresa was committed uh, for our first principle is charity. So there's always been a strong bond between the Knights of Columbus and missionaries of charity because of that reason. And the Knights has had a very close relationship with Mother Teresa. We did a lot of printing for them. We had a big printing plant, so we would print their constitution that goes to each member of the missionaries of charity. In 1992, Mother Teresa came to our annual convention, received our highest honor, the Gaudinet Spez Award. Uh, 1988, a few years before that, she had visited our headquarters in New Haven and spoke to all the employees. So there's been a history of a very warm, close relationship. When Mother Teresa died in the ensuing years, the leadership of the missionaries and charity explored a lot of different possibilities in the way of producing a, a feature film, even a Hollywood-style film that would tell the story of Mother Teresa and pass on her legacy to new generations. They went through a lot of different scripts. They couldn't really find the right director. They couldn't find the right script writer. They couldn't find the right actress to play Mother Teresa. Nothing just felt right to them. And obviously it's very important to the missionaries of charity how they present Mother Teresa. This of course is their foundress. This is someone they have a tremendous devotion to and a tremendous love for. And, and many of the sisters uh, knew her personally, you know, obviously um, were alive and spent time with her. And so they didn't find the right partner. There was a long long-standing relationship of trust with the Knights. I produced uh, 
with the Knights, many documentaries, including a, one in particular in 2016. It was called Liberating the Continent, John Paul II and the Fall of Communism. And that film explored the life of John Paul II and in particular focused on the incredible work he did in Poland in the 1980s, leading um, the Solidarity Movement, inspiring the Solidarity Movement, ultimately helping bring down communism. The Missionaries of Charity loved that film. Some of their members of the leadership, in particular Father Brian Kolodichek, the uh, postulator, really liked that documentary. And so they came to us and we started having dialogue a little over a year ago. You know, with the Knights of Columbus, because you're Catholic, because you have the right Catholic sense, and because of the relationship of trust we have with you, would you consider being the ones to tell the story and produce this documentary? And I'm very grateful that Supreme Knight Patrick Kelly, who has his own devotion to Mother Teresa and, and a love for the missionaries of charity, he said yes. And about a year ago in September, we officially started. We didn't start filming till late October. So, you know, this is a very ambitious undertaking, probably in terms of the amount of work and the length of the film and the amount of archival footage houses that we had to research. Everything that went into it. It's probably a two or three year project normally. And we we basically had to pack that in to 10 months and, and I'm really blessed to have a great team that was willing to work overtime but that's a little bit the background the context of why the Knights of Columbus uh, came to produce this documentary Watching the movie David I was thinking that you must have felt it as a great responsibility to make this documentary about Mother Teresa knowing that you wanted it to be and, and the people that you know understand and want and love Mother Teresa that this was this was going to be a signature project about her life Did you feel it a huge responsibility? And I'm thinking because Mother Teresa means so much to so many people, so many non-Catholics, who when they think of, of the goodness of the Catholic Church, what they think of is Mother Teresa. She she seems to embody that whole side of the Church that everyone can understand, even people that don't understand our doctrines and our dogmas. Yes, absolutely. It was a big, very humbling. Obviously, it was a tremendous honor initially and excitement because I'm a documentary filmmaker. And so to have the opportunity to do a, a, a tentpole, blue chip type documentary on such an iconic figure was a was a cause for excitement. So initially, yeah, there's excitement and there's a sense of honor and prestige. But then, yeah, it does become a sense of responsibility, you know, especially what we're aiming to achieve with this film. And I think the key thing for me is this is not the work of one person. This is not David Nallieri's vision of Mother Teresa. This film, very, my, if, if there's any credit for me and my team, it's being able to kind of package it together in a way that's cohesive and in a way that uh, opens people's hearts and minds. But the film is really carried by Mother Teresa's own words. So, you know, we've got a lot of help with the missionaries of charity. All the research, um, as, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware of, that goes into a cause for canonization. We had very detailed uh, biography. That really helped us a lot to be able to move very quickly into the kind of the scripting of the film and the the vision for the film when it came to the biographical elements. And we got a lot of, but, but really the film is carried by, you know, a lot of archival snippets of Mother Teresa. We did a tremendous amount of research finding Mother Teresa speaking in interviews when she would visit countries where she shared a lot about her background, about her spiritual outlook. So there's a lot of clips of Mother Teresa you hear from her directly. There's no narrator telling you, um, this is what you should think of Mother Teresa, or, or this is who she really was. We, there's no narrator in the film. There's you know text on screen that helps create bridges, but the film is carried by the voice of Mother Teresa herself, and by, I think, the visuals of, of all the incredible work they do, because to my mind, when you watch a missionary of charity bathing somebody with leprosy, or if you watch them caressing someone who's dying in a, on, on the streets, or if you watch them feeding a little disabled child with a hydrocephalus, those very large swollen heads, those visuals communicate better than any narrator's words could do as mm -hmm. who Mother Teresa was and uh, the mission of the missionaries of charity and ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ. David, how was your crew 
received or, or perceived by the people that the missionaries of charity serve that, you know, we see so much in the movie. Were they like, what is this or excited or was there a little bit of trepidation? Yeah, you know, it, you know there's always going to be the element of trepidation. In my experience, um, a lot of other opportunities I've had filming sometimes with homeless people or people who live in shelters. A lot of times it could be tricky, okay? Because a lot of times these people that, for example, they may they may have a criminal past, they may have uh, things they want to hide, they may not want to be on camera. So you're definitely dealing with tricky terrain. Now, what, in this particular, for this film, what made it work harmoniously is the fact that the missionaries of charity just are so loved by everybody. You know, the missionaries of charity, because of the work they do, the authenticity of it, they're just respected and loved by everybody. Um, and so when the missionaries of charity go to their apostolate and go to the poor people they serve and say, look, there's going to be a film crew coming. They're going to make a documentary. Because people trust them, mm-hmm. they trusted us. Um, absent the missionaries of charity speaking to people, saying this is something we approve of, we would ask you to do that. Absent that, we never could have gotten done this. I'm sure people would be running from the cameras or, or worse. And it was really remarkable to see that. I had a chance to travel down to Rio de Janeiro, where we filmed in the favelas, the slums of Rio de Janeiro, and also on the outskirts of that city in Brazil, where there's a, a place called Cracolandia, or Crackland in English. And this is a place where uh, drug dealers and drug addicts live right along the train tracks. Very, very dangerous location. Um, these people are not even allowed into the slums. And the slums, the police don't even go into. Okay, so it gives you an idea of how dangerous this location is. Um, then we brought film crews there. I'm responsible for their safety and security. So we had to we had to give some thought to this. How do we want to handle it? In a typical situation like this, you bring a security team with you. Uh, but that was not possible because the drug lords who rule these areas would never allow that. So, but we, the missionaries of charity, uh, because of the respect they have for them, the drug dealers, um, the criminals who run these areas and control them, they set a certain amount of time where they backed off. They did not sell drugs for like an hour. Um, they put away their weapons um, and they did that out of the deference and respect they have for missionaries of charity, knowing that these these women are doing God's work. So that gives you a little bit of a glimpse into the behind the scenes sausage making in a film like this. Um, and, and it was only made possible because of uh, the credibility of the missionaries of charity. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess, Ashley McGuire. And we're talking to writer, director, David Nalieri about his new film, No Greater Love, a really lovely documentary about St. Teresa of Calcutta. I think you were very successful in connecting the dots between this tremendous call within the call that St. Teresa heard that sent her to the the very bottom of society, the Calcutta slums. You, you have some snippets of what it must have been like back then. I think it was in the 40s, in the late 1940s when she arrived. And correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, she, how... she first leaves, uh, walks into the streets of Calcutta in uh, December of 1948. There you go, 1948. And and so you you do give us an impression in the in the film of how absolutely dire were the that was the condition of the people, a famine and, and terrible disease, dying on the streets right and left. But then one thing that I think is so perfect in your documentary is the way that you connect those scenes of desperation to the desperation that we that is existing everywhere in the world, here in the United States and in Africa and Rio de Janeiro, like you mentioned, um, and how that same human misery doesn't abate, even though we think of Mother Teresa as going to the, the bottom of the bottom uh, to help those people. Those people are still around us to this day, and I love the way that you connected those dots for us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, that's a powerful theme. You know, Mother Teresa, one of her key principles or teaching was the idea that 
you know, you have a material poverty. And that's what she encountered in Calcutta with uh, the people dying on the street, the famine, the great hardships that led her to establish Kaligat, the home for the dying, which has such a transformative impact on, on Indian culture in terms of people recognizing the dignity of those who are suffering and the dignity of the handicapped and the severely disabled. So there's a material suffering that the missionaries of charity were called to in, in their, you know, mission statement to quench the thirst of Jesus. But she also pointed out that even these Western wealthy countries, which we, which is our nation of the United States of America. See, she would often say there is this there, I find an even greater poverty. And that is that spiritual emptiness, that loneliness, that lack of love, which ultimately people fill with sex or drugs or other forms that, of, of addiction to try to quench that, ultimately, that, that missing element in their life, which, which can be only fulfilled by a relationship with God. And so Mother Teresa was a real prophet, and she really was able to identify this great sickness in our society. And in, in, in all her trips to Western Europe and to the United States, these wealthy countries, she hammered that point home time and time again. And when you look at the incredible impact she had on so many people's lives, we, we tell two stories in our film. One is a young woman who's a crack addicted mother, met her in San Francisco, late 1980s, had a transformative impact on her life. She was able to get her life together, have her baby, raise her child. The other one to film that, I, one of my favorite parts of the film is the testimony of Jim Wahlberg, um, famous Wahlberg family, of course. He's the older brother of Mark, wound up um, getting involved in drugs, gangs, a lot of problems, goes to prison, gets a six to nine year prison sentence, and in prison has an encounter with Mother Teresa who came to speak to the prisoners. And it was this love that she, uh, this complete love and reflection of the mercy of God that she presented to Jim that gave him a totally new understanding of the Christian faith and ultimately led him on a course to discover a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, how did she do that? She understood the root cause of our crisis in the West, which is this loneliness, which is a spiritual poverty. Um, and so th that's just um, one of the ways in which Mother Teresa was able to identify the ills of society and provide a remedy. And so in the film, we chronicle, yeah, the hope to the dead and the dying and the suffering and the sick which is so important, but also, also to those who are spiritually suffering. And I think in today's present day, as you know, with social media and with smartphones and with the new kind of, you know, work from home culture, it's very easy to become divided, to break apart, to feel lonely. Um, there's a lot of evidence that we're dealing with, a lot of mental health problems growing in society. Um, and so I think even more, it's an opportunity just to turn and learn from the example of Mother Teresa, um, that need for solidarity. And that need to build a relationship with God to find that peace, to find that happiness, and to see the face of Christ in our brother and sister. You mentioned um, smartphones and, and technology, and I was at the U.S. premiere of uh, the movie um, <clears throat> in Washington, D.C., and Patrick Kelly introduced the movie, and he made a point that I thought I hadn't thought about, which is that for many young people, not that they wouldn't know who she is, but they didn't grow up in the time when her presence was very much in the media and she was as discussed and photographed and that there was a, a hope that something that this documentary would do is to kind of memorialize her for younger generations. And I actually brought my 10 year old daughter to the movie who knew who she was, but really didn't know much about her and was fascinated by, by what she learned. And so how, you know, it, with it coming out to movie theaters um, very soon, are you optimistic that this will reach young people and, and uh, help preserve her memory 
to the next generation? Absolutely. I mean, there's a famous quote by Mother Teresa, not in the film per se. She had a lot of great quotes, by the way. And so I encourage people to go get some of her books or writings. And she had a lot of kind of very pithy, but very penetrating and insightful quotes. But one of them, the most fam- one of the most famous ones, of course, is we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. So I try not to look at coming release the film and look just for metrics or numbers or sales to see, you know, whether or not it's successful. My, but my hope certainly is that the film will help introduce Mother Teresa to new audiences. You know, as, as, a, as a documentary filmmaker, I find it kind of curious and interesting that it was a documentary film, Something Beautiful Forgot, which came out in 1969, written and directed by Malcolm Muggeridge, of course, with a companion book, Something Beautiful Forgot, that really helped launch Mother Teresa into the stratosphere. You know, that put her on the map. And then, of course, we have the Nobel Peace Prize 1979. So I'm hoping that this film can be seen by audiences, young and old. For some people, it's an opportunity to go much more in depth, to learn about this remarkable woman and and to learn about how her spirituality, how her gifts can be incorporated into her own lives and help us grow in our faith. But I think for young people, it's just so important that we pass the baton of faith on. Essentially, that's how Christianity was born with the apostles. This is, we have a rich history of oral testimony. We have to tell our stories to our young people and pass on our Catholic identity. And and the generation that we grew up in, I was born in 1980, so I was 17 years old when Mother Teresa died. She is uh, one of the leading figures of the 20th century, and she had a transformative impact on the world. And she was a living symbol of what Christianity is supposed to be, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And I think her teaching, her life can impact lives. And I think it's incumbent on us to tell the new generation about this remarkable woman, about this great work that God gave to her. And uh, and I hope this film has a chance to do that. And I hope many years from now, I meet a young woman who's a missionary of charity who said, I, I, I found my vocation initially by watching your film and learning about the missionaries of charity. And that, that, that was the birth of my vocation. That's to me, even hearing that from one young woman years from now would be a lot worth a lot more than any reports on uh, DVD sales or, or uh, distribution deals. David, I, I feel pretty sure that that's going to happen. Watching it myself, I think it's going to spark, or I hope it sparks many vocations. There's such a, a nobility about her and, and the other sisters. That phrase they keep repeating over and over again in, in, the, in your film, that each of these people is Jesus. Everyone they touch right. is Jesus. Every face they see is Jesus. And and how they feel it so deeply and they they really know it you know the things that all something that all christians should know what what you did to the least of my brothers that you did to me but they are living that that beautiful christian ideal and and you did you you showed it very very well on the film very beautifully and very it's sort of chilling actually the gap between the way most of us live our faith and the way these uh, mother Teresa lived her faith and the and her and her sisters live her faith and one thing you didn't shy away from and i was wondering if you were going to go into it in the film and i'm glad that you did it it, it brought tears to my eyes was her terrible suffering her dark night of the soul i remember learning about this some time ago, but I had forgotten something you say in the film, which was it lasted 50 years. And sometimes I myself go through periods of dryness, like everyone else, and I find them very difficult. And I'm not working in slums and taking care of lepers and, you know, getting up at 4am to to say my prayers so I can have a 10 hour, you know, or 12 hour day and doing tremendous labors of love. It, It really touched me to think of poor Mother Teresa suffering in that dark night. Yes. Yes, no, absolutely. We, it definitely had to be in the film. We didn't want to lead with it. We didn't want to make it a central focus, but it had to be touched on. I think, um, and I think we did in a deft way and a, and a respectful way. There was, when the information first came, came out, 
after her death, when they began to do the research for the cause for canonization, of course, they found these letters uh, where she expresses this emptiness and this inability to feel the love of God. And this this came after, of course, this incredible intimacy she had with Jesus. When she's on that train in September 1946, hears the voice, um, Wilt thou refuse? Come be my light. Uh, quench my thirst. Go serve the poorest of the poor. So she's hearing this audible voice of Jesus having this very, very close intimacy with him. Um, and then that disappears. And that never comes back. And the remarkable thing is some of the testimonials in the family is people who worked very, very closely with her were shocked to hear this because she always had that joy, that joy of Christ. Um, she was just incredible channel of grace despite these sufferings but going back to the point i think there was some misinformation that came out in those years after mother Teresa's death where people extrapolated some of the things she wrote in her journals to indicate that she lost belief in god for example or that she was having a crisis of faith and that's never what it was um it was it was always this dark night of the soul it was this cross it was this suffering that eventually through the help of her dialogue and prayer um, and help of her spiritual advisors and counselors and confessors she came to see as part of something god gave to her to offer up to redemptive suffering and to help bond her in a more intimate way with the poor and um yeah that the aspect of suffering in her life is quite remarkable we also delve in the film also this great suffering in her family you couldn't find a more family-oriented person than mother Teresa. and she left home at the age of 18 said goodbye to her mother and her sister who she loved profoundly and deeply and never saw them again and that was another element of the suffering uh, that we explore in the film as well that I find quite moving. She was, in her love for Jesus and in her desire to serve Jesus, she was uh, truly willing to suffer uh, incredibly. And, um, you know, that great mystery of the Catholic faith, the, the idea of redemptive suffering, which sees its ultimate fulfillment in Christ on the cross, is really reflected in an extraordinary way with Mother Teresa because despite all that suffering, are constantly constant pouring forth the love of Christ into the lives of others. I mean, you just look around the world and you see what's happening. You have more than the missionaries of charity in more than 140, 150 countries transforming life after life, giving it them dignity, bringing people hope, uh, bringing people God's mercy. It's it's an extraordinary story, but uh, you don't get there without Mother Teresa overcoming um, and powering through a, a great personal trials. Well, an extraordinary story and an extraordinary film, David. I congratulate you on, on a work really well done, beautifully well done. And I encourage all our listeners to watch the movie. It's going to be in theaters on October 3rd and 4th. And they can go for information to um, MotherTeresaMovie.com. Is that right, David? That's right. Yep, MotherTeresaMovie.com. Uh, no age in the Teresa either, but thank you so much for all the support. It's been a great interview, and uh, and yeah, thank you. just really, really hoping for a good turnout and that uh, people can open their hearts to the message of the film, which uh, I think is transformative.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie on EWTN Radio. Um, joining me right now is my colleague at the TCA, Ashley McGuire, and a great new guest that we haven't had on the show before. Her name is Nicole Caruso. She's the author of Worthy of Wearing, How Personal Style Expresses Our Feminine Genius. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful topic here in Miami where I live and where Nicole just told us she recently moved on to South Florida, which is nice, and she's enjoying it. It's very hot and people are taking out their summer clothes and they're very, very skimpy. <laughs> and I drive by the beach every day because uh, on my way in and out of, of the little island where I live, I, I drive along the beach causeway. People's bathing suits are getting smaller and smaller. And uh, although I should be glad, I guess I should be thankful we're still wearing them as is not the case in some countries. But anyway, summer is a time when people become more scantily clad. And in general, it, it, uh, it helps us sort of confront these, these trends in, in the way we dress and, and the way that it doesn't express our feminine genius in many ways. So I'm glad that, that you wrote your book. And, and tell us, what does your book address and what did you hope to do with it? So this book, I wanted to create a resource for women that could understand not only their inherent dignity, but also the calling that we have as women to um, share that love of Christ with others through not only how we dress, but through how we behave, how we interact with others, because it's all fluid. You know, we're body and soul. And I really didn't feel there was a book that showcased this in a way that was both beautiful and thought provoking. So um, Worthy of Wearing is really just an explanation of of that and a, and a way to go deeper in your prayer and your discernment to say, okay, who am I? Who is the person God created me to be? How can I express this in a really authentic way that's also fun and delightful and and shows the dignity that I have? In your book, you talk about like this is a this is a mindset and sort of a thought process, and I think that's a really interesting and sort of different way of looking at things because we have such a kind of superficial culture and it's a lot about brands and things that are on the external, but you sort of argue that this, the concept of fashion and, and what you wear emanates from inside of you. And how did you come to that thought? Because it's so different. Well, I think through my own journey of playing around with different styles and fashions. I've always loved it, but I had never really hit on what, when, when do I truly feel like myself? What am I wearing in those, in those moments? And then realizing that it is a mindset because you have to make a choice and make a habit around it rather than just saying, kind of like when you decide to eat every day, am I going to eat to nourish my body or am I eating something that's just to fill up the void that's there? You know, usually we like to eat something that's also delicious and healthy and maybe even looks beautiful on a plate. And I think fashion and style is very similar. We find a lot of joy, I think, especially as women, when something is palatable, it feels exciting to our senses. And it also feels right in our soul. So it does take some discernment and also building a habit around it, I think, is where the, the word mindset came into play. Because it's very easy to throw on clothing that your best friend told you to buy or that's coming down the runway that's trendy. Um, but if it's not right with who you are authentically, it not only shows in your own confidence, but I think also when you go out into the world, you can kind of sense when someone is wearing something that's expressing something that's different than actually the person God created them to be. You know, but you're, you're talking about self 
self-expression. And that's something that our culture gets wrong a lot of the time. You know, the modern culture put, puts this laser focus on self-expression that whatever's inside has to come out. But I'm sure that's not how you mean it. It's not about, I'm sure it's not about in your head and, and in ours, it's not about just expressing whatever idea, you know, you woke up with that day. It's something deeper than that. How, how is it deeper than that idea of self-expression? Because your personal style, in my opinion, is about your story and who you are. It's so much more than just what is trending or what is popular. So I like to really think, have someone take a full reflection of, you know, where have I traveled? What is my family background like? Uh, What are the things that bring me joy? Are there colors that are really special to me? Are there pieces of jewelry that I have that are from my family that make me feel connected to my history? That's what true personal style is. And that's where the effortlessness comes in. When you're creating a persona, anyone can throw on the same dress. But when you see a woman who's authentically wearing that dress because it's connected to who she is, you just see a different sort of confidence and peace in the way that she walks and the way that she carries herself. Something else that gets to this mindset, mindset concept reminds me of a conversation I had with my daughter this weekend actually I was taking her to a pool party and um, these were fourth grade girls and she was one of just a couple who was in a one-piece suit and it led to a discussion of modesty I had a sort of a hard time answering her questions about where is the line with modesty because I said you know different cultures understand it differently what might be modest for us is not modest for other cultures ultimately what I sort of and that you know it's not a about like measuring how thick is the strap and where exactly does the hem fall, but that it's more about what is your intention with what you're wearing and what kind of attention are you trying to attract? And that was sort of the best that I could come up with. But I wonder how you would answer the question of is modesty a mindset? And especially in our culture, you know, what would be how would you address this issue of sort of reclaiming modesty and, and what is modesty in fashion in the modern era? Well, I think to, to start with the question of your daughter, I think, you know, I have a daughter as well who's around the same age and we talk about this a lot, especially living in a place where it's so warm. You know, we see lots of people wearing warm weather clothing that's not always fully modest. But what I would tell her is that, you know, our body was created with so much intentionality, with so much beauty and love um, that we should not reveal what should remain hidden. And there are parts of our body that should remain hidden. And that's just a very simple way to explain it to, you know, a little girl. But I think part of it also is that every body shape is different. Every body's, you know, bust and hips and the way that we walk and the size of our torso is different. So what may look modest on me may look immodest on someone else. So it really comes down to knowing how your body, you know, knowing the shape and size of your body and how the clothing drapes over it. And does it reveal something that should be hidden? And does that cause a distraction in an interaction that you're having, let's say, uh, where someone should be just meeting your gaze and seeing your beautiful face and learning from you um, by meeting you at the face? Or is there something that's revealed that is distracting to that interaction that they are going to, whether by the creasing of the clothing or the way it's draping or the skin that's exposed, going to miss out on looking at your eyes first and getting to know you and therefore making a judgment about the way that your something is exposed or that is distracting. You know, modesty today is... People forget it's a virtue. (laughs) Um, It's a virtue in our behavior, in our speech, in the way that we dress. And it's so much more holistic than just the size of your your straps or the depth of your V-neck. And I think when we look at it that way and we think of refining our behavior 
to be more Christ-like, to be more virtuous, um, how we dress and how we behave just goes hand in hand very easily. One thing that puzzles me as as the mother of girls is that girls these days are growing up and they're being told that they are very powerful people, that they're going to go out and conquer the world and they're, they can do anything. At the same time, they're being asked by by the culture, by the same culture, by by Hollywood, by the media, to dress in very provocative ways that, that puts first and before everything, all the, all the other wonderful wonderful things that they are, it puts first their sexual attractiveness and even their sexual availability. How do we talk to our daughters about this, about how, you know, that part of themselves is not something that they should be holding front and center, that that's something that should be more um, more intimate and more more quietly expressed and, and not only in the right places and times. Yeah, this is something I think that's so important for our girls to hear right now. Um, it's such a contradiction from the media to say, you can be great and powerful. You can have influence only if you take your clothes off and you're mm-hmm. as sexy as possible. And so it puts us in this position of vulnerability and takes away our dignity, but then says, but now you can be powerful. And that's impossible. You know, so explaining to our young girls that that contradiction of, well, we shouldn't strip away our dignity to then have power. We should uh, maintain our dignity. We should protect our dignity. Um, we should hold on to that. That way, when we are using our gifts and our talents, we can fulfill our mission in a way that truly is powerful with the blessing of God rather than being in this very vulnerable state where so many terrible things can happen from even just switching the way that you dress, moving into dressing immodestly can attract the wrong people into your life. It can detract from the opportunities that you may have. Um, You think of professional settings and university settings, and the the more that you take your own self-respect and dignity seriously, the more success that you can have because the focus is away from your physical body and it's back onto your gifts, your strengths, and your talents. Those are beautiful. That's a beautiful way that you express that. I'm going to record. I'm going to take this recording and play it back to my daughters. This is a very, it's, it's a, it's a lovely way to express something very true. Know that the people, that these girls, young women have so much more to offer than, than their bodies. And unfortunately, it does put them in a very sad position and very undignified position at, at, at which point they're not powerful because they're trading on the lo- in the lowest coin of the realm, right? Which is, which is sexuality. How do we, how do we as adult women, um, how do we model that? For, uh, because even, even women, when we're grown up, we have trouble. I know I have trouble trying to stay fashionable and trying to stay contemporary and not being overly sexualized in, in, in my look and in, in the tightness of my clothes. It's hard to shop. It's hard to find that right uh, balance as, as age advances. Well, I think the first thing to remember is that a lot of us are wounded in this area, especially as adult women, uh, whether it was from just experiences we had, whether it was from the toxic feminism that we've all been really fed over the course of our lives. And so having that very narrow view of this is what a woman should look like and this is what she should be, having that at the forefront, I think, is a is a really good reminder, just like the way that we're reminded of our sin, like, okay, acknowledge we're sinful. And then that's how we have mercy. That's how we have Christ walking with us. When we acknowledge the wounds that we have surrounding our femininity around the way that we dress, it's much easier to have that awareness and not pass it on to our girls. So for example, you know, making sure that when we're speaking about ourselves, we're not speaking about ourselves in a way that detracts from our self-respect and saying something negative, like, oh, I hate the way I look in that color, or gosh, I wish I was just 10 pounds lighter, or 
you know, oh, I really don't like, you know, I look like a mess today. You know, those little phrases that we hear in our culture all the time that have become so commonplace, our girls are listening, they're watching. And so it's so important for us to have really that kind of self-control to say, you know what, Lord, I, I know you created me with dignity. I may not feel beautiful. I may not feel like the most amazing, beautiful woman because I wish I did have 10 pounds less on the scale, or I wish I was a size X, Y, and Z. Um, but letting that love of Christ fill you and not letting it be attached to a size, a shape is going to model for our daughters how to do that too. And it is easier said than done. And I, and I'm now pregnant, so I'm going through lots of <laughs> changes and, uh, sizes and all these things. And so much easier said than done some days, but it's so important for us to maintain that, that self-respect in front of our young girls, because it's so easy to go out and shop and say, well, I'm going to buy this thing because it's on sale. I'm going to buy this dress because I saw it on someone else and it looked great. Um, we really have to have a very pure sense of what fits our body, what is our personal style. And that way it just flows. And I've noticed in the, in the last, even in the last few months that we've been living in South Florida, I've been wearing a lot more dresses, which was never really something I would wear. My four-year-old son constantly tells me how lovely and beautiful he mm. thinks my <laughs> dresses and, and notices these things where before when I was wearing a pair of Levi's and a t-shirt, it was just never, you know, a conversation. So there's something very beautiful that happens when you start to model these ideals in front of your children. And it, it just teaches them, you know, by doing rather than by, by saying it, you know, we're, we're both uh, moms to young kids and, you know, especially for moms who are mostly staying home and then add on the pandemic where people, you know, are probably, you know, maybe this is changing and certainly beginning to change, but there's certainly been movement away from getting dressed. And I think the struggle is really real for moms. And I certainly struggle with it because there's days where I'm like, why would I get dressed? <laughs> I am not seeing any adults between the hours of X and X, at least not adults that I'm ever going to see again. And um, it's just a very different lifestyle when you leave sort of a workplace environment, um, whether you're working at home or staying at home with kids. So what would your advice be to moms who feel totally overwhelmed at the concept of going from like yoga pants and tank tops? I don't know anybody who dresses like that ever. Um, to, <laughs> you know, how is there like, what's like a step-by-step -step or sort of manageable way to just bring it to the next level? You know, I think starting small, uh, you know, go through your jewelry box look at your shoes, go through your tops and maybe you're wearing the yoga pants, but maybe you're throwing on a really beautiful sweater or maybe you have some lipstick that's your favorite color and you keep saying, I'm going to save that until Sunday mass or I'm going to wear that the next time I go out with my girlfriends for dinner or date night with my husband. Why not today? That's, that's my question because life is very short and I think we learned that especially in the last few years, just all of the different tragedies that have been hitting our world. Life is short and we should spend it in enjoyment. And there are very small, tiny little things we can do every day to feel a little bit of delight and a little bit of lightness. And I think as a stay-at-home mom, we can often get overwhelmed with the sort of never-ending uh, you know, chores and things that kids need and the things that come up that we don't expect. So having these little small expressions of beauty can bring us a little bit of peace. And it doesn't need to, you know, mean that you're wearing a, a full blazer and high heels in the house or something or a full face of makeup. It's whatever brings you that little bit of beauty. 
and joy and delight. And then I think once you start getting that those feet kind of wet, you start to say, well, okay, I, I tried earrings and now I'm going to maybe move into some lipstick and maybe in a few months I'll start, you know, wearing these beautiful clothes that I love that I keep saving. Um, because ultimately when we save things for certain occasions, we're sort of making an idol out of the clothing and saying, well, it's so special that it's not good enough for me today. Or it's so special that I have to keep waiting and waiting. And then we end up with these closets full of beautiful things that we don't use. And so to be good stewards of our material items, it's important for us to, of course, use the things that we own, use them to our benefit and use them to not only bring ourselves joy, but um, really to, to create an approachability with the ones that we're with all day, whether it's our children or in a workplace. Um, or even if you're just going to get gas, you know, sometimes you have great interactions with strangers um, because they feel they can approach you because of the way that you've put yourself together. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that at the end, Nicole, because I, f- I find that um, dressing dressing up a little is often a, a, a kind of charity that we practice and a kind of apostolate, right? Like if somebody, if you go over to bring a child to a friend's house or somebody invites you over for a cup of coffee or even for your husband, um, they know that you took a little extra care and that you you tried a little harder and made yourself more beautiful and more presentable and and people really appreciate that as a culture it's it's very nice to to remember that when we when we dress we also dress for others for their pleasure for their for, so that they know that we care how they are feeling that day and that they know that we took a little extra care to to go be with them does that uh, does that make sense to you too Absolutely. And I I think it dignifies our jobs, especially being a stay-at-home mom, to show that, you know, we're not a slave. We're not a servant Mm -hmm. to our children in our house and our husband and our family. We're our own individual women with with our own unique expression. And so it's important for us to maintain that so that, you know, 10, 20, 30 years into our life as a mother, we're not questioning, who is this woman in the mirror? You know, who is she? What happened to that young, fun girl who met her husband and they fell in love? You know, we have to maintain those simple habits of getting dressed, brushing our teeth, you know, combing our hair because they express that little piece of who we are. And I think we are, we can forget that so easily when we stop doing it. And in the name of taking care of kids, cleaning a house, you know, running people around in carpools and things like that, we have to maintain that because that is our, that is essentially who we are. It's an important part of who God made us to be. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for all your wise words. Um, after this, I'm going to go make myself pretty for the day. <laughs> if you could see me, you'd be horrified. <laughs> not following any of your wise wise counsel right now Um, but it's still early in the morning and uh, i hope that our listeners will look up your book it's called worthy of wearing and you can visit nicole's website at nicolemcaruso.com that's nicole with just a c not a ch and the book is available through sophia institute press Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when he'll speak to us about the reality of heaven. November, as you know, is the month in which the church always focuses on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. At the beginning of the month, we celebrate All Saints Day, 
which we remember and ask the intercession of all those who have arrived at the place to which we aspire. The next day we mark All Souls Day and remember and pray for all the dead, especially those who are in need of our prayers and sacrifice to enter into paradise. Throughout the month, the church keeps the focus on the last things in front of us. First, the fact that each of us will die, some of us by surprise much earlier than we think. Second, as soon as we die, we'll be judged. And Jesus gives us the criteria of that final exam of life, but we need to be ready for it by a life of Christian faith, hope, and love. He'll separate us, he tells us, on the base of our deeds, whether we've known and loved God and whether we've cared for him and our needy neighbors. Some of us will go to heaven, whether directly or through the purification of purgatory, and others, by our own choice, will go to a place of definitive self-alienation from God. These are realities that Jesus affirms throughout the gospel. In this Sunday's gospel, he speaks about heaven in conversation with a group called the Sadducees, who are the members of the high priestly elites and who didn't believe in the resurrection. They accepted only the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, and thought that there was no reference there at all to resurrection of the dead. To try to test Jesus and prove their point about the absurdity of the resurrection of the body, they brought to Jesus the invented example of a woman who successfully married seven different brothers after each previous brother had died. If according to the text of Genesis, she had become one flesh with seven different men until death they parted, then with whom would she be one flesh in the resurrection, they asked, if there were a resurrection? Since it's ridiculous to think that she would be united in one flesh to seven brothers simultaneously, then there couldn't be a resurrection at all, they supposed. Jesus' answer to them highlighted two essential things about heaven. First, he said that it's only the children of this age who marry and remarry. In heaven, he states, there will be no marrying or giving in marriage because there will only be one wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride, the church. The institution and sacrament of marriage, Jesus implies, is a reality for this world. The reason is pretty obvious. Marriage has a twofold purpose, love and life, or in more traditional terminology, the mutual sanctification of the spouses and the procreation and education of children. In heaven, there's no purpose to marriage because men and women no longer need to be sanctified since they're already saints. And there will be no new children because saints aren't having babies and baptisms in the afterlife. While there will be no marriage and conjugal sexual activity in heaven, however, there certainly will be love. Marriage in this world is meant to prepare spouses and children to enter into that love, the perfect love of God and the love of the communion of saints. It's meant to get us ready for the loving intersubjectivity of the communion of saints within the loving communion of persons who is the Blessed Trinity. It's meant to prepare us as the bride for the wedding feast of the Lamb. The second thing Jesus' answer highlights is that contrary to the Sadducees' supposition, the Torah or Pentateuch does speak about heaven. Jesus says that when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, he identified himself as the great I am, literally Yahweh, as well as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God didn't tell Moses that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that he is their God. Therefore, in rabbinical logic, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob couldn't truly be dead because, as Jesus says, the Lord is God not of the dead, but of the living. Eternal life, therefore, is real. Resurrection is real. What are the practical consequences that we should take from Jesus' conversation with the Sadducees? First consequence is to stoke our hunger for heaven. 
Jesus told so many parables of the kingdom of heaven in order to whet our appetites for the eternal banquet. When we at his instruction dare to pray to our Father in heaven, thy kingdom come, we're supposed to be stirring into a flame our desire to be with him and all the saints in his unending kingdom of love. The second consequence is that we must develop a personal, truly vital relationship with God. The God of the universe is not the deity of a cemetery of dead bodies, but rather the God of the living, and not just the living in general. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's meant to be the God of Roger, of Gracie, of Ashley, Maureen, Lee, Alyssa, and fill in your own name. The resurrection is not so much an event as a relationship with Jesus who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus declared during the Last Supper, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life, in other words, begins when we enter into deep, intimate friendship with God, when we join our life to his, because once he's truly living in us, we're beginning to live forever since God's life is eternal. The third consequence is to take advantage of the means God gives to enter into that life-giving relationship with him. The sacraments, like marriage and this Sunday's gospel, but also obviously baptism, confession, the Holy Eucharist, confirmation and the anointing of the sick, are all meant to help us enter into that vital relationship. Jesus comes to abide in us and help us abide in him through the sacraments. If we keep that communion with God who is eternal, then death will be nothing other than a change of address to a place far more beautiful than any earthly mansion, not made by man eternal in heaven. Jesus is the God of the living, and he wants us to enter into a consequential conversation with him, not of words, but of life, so that we might experience the eternal joy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Mary and Joseph, of Francis, Dominic, and Ignatius, of Teresa, Catherine, and Edith, and all the saints. Let's take advantage of the grace of this month of November to focus on the reality of heaven and on God's call for us like the saints to choose it in all our daily decisions. God bless you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 